Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Abby. Overeater recovering bulimic. Hi, I just need to say this is my third time leading Light a Candle and the most nervous I've ever been. I think it's because, well, there's two reasons why. One, I have such reverence for this meeting because I listen to the speakers and podcasts when I travel and it saved my butt so many times. So I just want to be of service as best I can for the people listening. And two, uh, just to qualify, this is my almost in February, God willing, it'll be 12 years in program and 12 years abstinent, and I'm really feeling my feelings. For the first time, the last two years, I, you know, I, someone just said to me recently, it's not until after 10 years you really start getting into the shit, and sorry, I apologize, I'm a swearer, I'm going to try as best not to, but that's how I express myself, I'm going to really try not to, but... After 10 years, you start really getting into what's going on, and that is totally my experience. I've unwrapped so many layers, and now I'm feeling my feelings in real time, which has led to great recovery, amazing discoveries, but also pretty hard things to walk through, and a really fun side effect, which has been panic attacks, which I don't know if anybody else can relate to, which has started happening when I was leading, and so... um, what I've learned to do uh, when anything, I'm struggling with something, I don't keep it to myself, or when this is our secret, and I am honest. I talk about, you know, the, the principle behind step one. I just get really honest. I'm nervous. And then when I started telling people that I was having panic attacks, or what the symptoms were, I didn't even know what they were. I'm like, I'm disassociating. I'm sweating. Like, what is happening? I think I'm having, a, like, a stroke. And they're like, no. Some of my friends are like, you're having a panic attack. And then I got solutions of what you can do if you have a panic attack. So if anybody else suffers from that, you can talk to me after the meeting. I found some great solutions. Anyway, so I'm feeling my feelings in real time. And the reason that that's happening and how it's related to my food and my body and this addiction is that um, I came into program about, 12 years ago, January 2005, because of a spiritual, basically, shitstorm in my life that led me into these rooms, and I was totally unwilling to come when I first heard of OA. My binge buddy from college was on the East Coast, and she told me she found OA and was getting recovery, and I was really judgmental about the name, and um, to qualify, I'm not just a compulsive overeater and bulimic, it's just easy <laughs> just to shorten it to those two, but I've done everything, the laxatives, the anorexia, the compulsive exercise, so I was still, you know, wanting to exhaust all of the other uh, easier, softer ways before I got into a program called Overeaters Anonymous, so it took another six months of pain. And again, some things that happened in my life that led me into the rooms, and specifically it was because it was January, and my New Year's resolution was to lose the weight, of course, and I joined a commercial diet program for the third time, and every Saturday morning when I went to weigh in, and I had gained like seven ounces, and wanted to, one, punch the woman in the face who told me that, (laughs) and then two, couldn't function in my life because I didn't thought, I didn't think that I deserved to show up for the things in my life because of the way that I looked and my weight. And so for me, the way, that, and, and that's what got me into program because that conflict between what my brain was telling me and, and what was happening in my life, I had all these opportunities. I just moved to LA for my dream job, 
super social, but I felt like I was like in the Wizard of Oz. It's like, don't look behind the curtain. Look over here. Look over here. Because what I was doing, I was just so ashamed of the way that I looked and didn't feel like I deserved to show up for this life. And that dichotomy was too much for me. And I knew that if I kept it going, I would probably commit suicide. So um, it got me into the rooms. And for me, this disease, what I learned is it centers in my mind. This is a disease that, for me, the way it manifests is perfectionism. Perfectionism in every single thing that I do, and my disease sets the bar so high that I can never reach it, and then that plunges me into shame and humiliation and doing all sorts of crazy things to try and be perfect. And just to backtrack of where that came from, that here's what's interesting about this spiritual uh, you know, mess that I got into in the last two years is that the way I saw my story is completely different today than I did two years ago. So it's interesting to talk here when I led before in terms of what my story is because I, it's different now. So what happened in the last two years, and I'll talk about that, is that um, you know, the food in the body, I was, the, that obsession was lifted for me when I came into these rooms. I did, the physical recovery didn't come right away. I actually had to learn spiritual and emotional recovery first before the physical happened, and that's God for me. Because if I had gotten the weight loss, then I would have been out just with no tools for living and just, you know, compulsive in whatever other area. So I needed to learn new tools because all I had from growing up and prior to walking to these rooms were these really broken tools. Um, and my compulsivity actually first started not with food, um, and this is just my story, so if you're new and you're not hearing anything you relate to, I was encouraged to go to six meetings. Hopefully you'll hear your story. Um, but my story is that at age seven, I developed, um, at that point was called, uh, was in, uh, uh, labeled in OCD. It's called trichotillomania. I pulled out my eyelashes and my eyebrows. And so my whole childhood, the way I defined my story prior to the last two years was that I was the problem. I had this behavioral issue. It was so much for my family. I was such, I was so damaged that, like, that's why all the chaos was in my family. And I was physically flawed. I was getting a lot of messages of, like, if you don't fix this physical issue, you're never going to be loved. Actual, like, really horrible things, which before thinking, like, I didn't really think that that was a problem, that my mom was telling me I looked like an alien or a cancer patient or no one was ever going to love me. So that was a lot of the messages I was getting. So now two years ago, I've realized, oh, two, I've had to do a lot of work of like that's child abuse in addition to a lot of other things. And the reason why I developed this disorder was because I was dealing with trauma in the home. So my, so now what my story is, is, um, I, and then this is God, too. In the last two years, I've found a lot of evidence of that there was, this was abuse and not just pushy, obnoxious parents. My mom's an alcoholic, and she came from a cycle, uh, from her own mother, who was extremely critical and favored her brother and showed her no affection. And um, so that's what, those were the tools that she was given. But I had to go back and relook at my childhood because I was experiencing patterns of behavior in my life today that I didn't, um, ooh, I didn't want to experience anymore. And that's what this program has taught me is if I'm doing things in my life that make me feel bad, like there's some work to be done. And so that's where this spiritual mess came in. There were a bunch of things that happened all at once. And I'm like, ooh, there's some stuff in my past that I don't think I've completely dealt with. So that's why I had to go back. And I got into therapy again. And I'm a big fan of a lot of outside help, whatever works, whatever you need to do to get relief, great. The 12 steps is the basis of how I find relief um, today. So what happened was, so I got all this evidence, like I got VHS tapes, and what I saw was that there was a lot of emphasis on the way that I looked before I was seven. 
and uh, a lot of messages of like you're pretty and you know you, therefore you need to perform and succeed and so my parents I didn't know that I have no memory of this were trying to get me an agent they were having me model and do all this stuff I have no memory of any of this stuff and I learned about this recently and so the pressure and what was happening at home with my mother who just was just had no coping skills for a child she just had no ability to you know tolerate uh, a child's needs and only had room to tolerate her own and then my dad was taking care of her so I was left to be perfect there was no time for crying there was food a lot of course food given when I would cry and so I learned very fast to not cry and to not have needs and not have feelings lest I it was bad so you know that um by age seven, I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't handle the pressure, and that's when the trick started. And then it became me and the problem. And so um, I went to a therapist at starting at age seven, and this is another piece of evidence I learned. My parents kept taking me to multiple different therapists, and I've now learned that that is called therapy shop, therapist shopping because my parents weren't hearing. My mom wasn't hearing what she liked because the therapists were telling her, you're the problem, and she didn't really want to hear that. So they kept moving me to different therapists until at age 12, they took me to um, a real psychiatrist because of my mom's needs. My mother would not tolerate the fact that I couldn't, that I was going to look the way that I did without eyelashes and eyebrows for my bat mitzvah pictures and for my bat mitzvah. And that was going to be completely unacceptable to like her family and to the community at large. And so she's like, well, I'm going to fix this. And they took me to a real psychiatrist who, oh, my God, I'm so grateful to this man, Dr. Bennett Levithal, um, in Chicago. <laughs> I'll say his name. If anybody's listening, he is wonderful with children. And the way that he evaluated what happened, he obviously said to my mother, she's doing this because of you. And for whatever reason, that stuck at that point, And she went, and I don't know what she did, but therapy didn't stick. Neither did, like, going into a 12-step program. But I think it was pills that, like, helped turn the dial down. So, <laughs> so you know, whatever, it worked for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, like, extreme, uh, like, yelling and criticism subsided a little bit. Um, and then, but then, you know, so I stopped with the eyelashes and eyebrows. I still suffer from trick in a different way, but it's manageable for me now. And, um, but then it morphed into my food and body. Because what would happen is... I'd come home from school, and I didn't know what was going to walk in the door a couple hours later, so I would, like, create a little buffer for myself with binging, going to the kitchen, TV, kitchen, TV, kitchen, TV, and build, like, what I, at that point, was my, my version of a serenity bubble. I build a different kind of serenity bubble when I have to be with my mother now that involves the tools of program. <laughs> but before, it was, like, patting myself with, um, you know, food and to, to be able to handle what was walking in the door because I never knew. Um, and then, so there's also good stuff that came from all of this stuff, and I can see that, too, from programs. So one thing, I became very, very adept at, at sort of evaluating people's emotional <laughs> moods because I had to, like, figure out what mood she was in and sort of make the crazy okay. And that has served me very well in my professional life, actually. <laughs> um, I've worked for some of the crazy, notoriously famous crazy people in my industry, and because I've been able to tolerate their crazy and sort of maneuver around them. And so there can always be, I, I see it as, you know, there can be good that can come from, from pain. And so that's one good thing that came from my childhood. Um, the other good thing that came from my childhood is that I, one of the other ways I would cope myself is I would dive into books 
television and movies. I would go hide in story, so, you know, to be safe. And that consumption of constant story is what I do today, um, and I'll get to that later, but you know, so again, like some good, that was God, you know, God had me find my, uh, my passion, my purpose for being here at a very young age because I was escaping the trauma of what I was dealing with. So cut to high school. I can kind of gloss over that. High school sucks for everybody. So, (laughs) you know, I, yeah, bad. Um, and my parents, and this is another thing. I look at that totally differently. My parents put me in private school from kindergarten to third grade, public school from fourth grade to eighth grade, and then a private school again for high school. And I went into this really fancy private high school. My parents are not wealthy. We're very solidly middle class. So I was taking the 22 bus to school while all these kids are getting chauffeured and dropped off and they're whatever. And um, as any teenager, I would want the stuff that they had, their nice clothes and their, like, cool stuff. And I would ask for that and get yelled at constantly and constantly that I'm a grateful little bitch that, you know, they're paying for my education. How dare I ask for extra things? So that's not – so now (laughs) I'm able to see, like, that's not really fair to do to a kid. And my sister went to public school the whole way and they bought her a car. So, you know, my sister and I have had completely different childhoods, and that's something I've had to also come to terms with, that not to look to my sister for validation, because her experience was so completely different than mine. I also parented her, um, which I've now, like, that's, those are memories that are coming back in the last two years of, like, oh, I took care of my sister. I crawled into her crib when she was crying and took care of her. And, like, so she has this completely different experience. The way she coped, she's a normie, too, which is incredible to watch. <laughs> so I want to be totally normal about food and body. It's like, I'm like, you're like a unicorn. Um, and I love it. And I love that she, like, can have this, like, you know, it, not be tortured by this disease. And that makes me feel very grateful that, you know, my, between myself and my dad, we were able to, like, not have her be, have this disease. Anyway, so... High school, college, I loved. I went to a big public high school, a big public college as a, like, rebound, and that's what I wanted. And this was finally me doing something for my needs. And I was able to pursue, you know, film and television and what I, what I do, and I loved it. I loved every single second of it. Um, and I graduated in 2002, 2002, right after September 11, and, like, the tech bubble had burst and there were no jobs to be found. And for my industry, the first job you get is to be an assistant to somebody. And I wanted to move to New York. And um, so this, now looking back, I'm able to see God taking care of me, in, especially in my career. The way it's happened is just so God and so, like, I had a certain plan. God had a different plan. At the time, I would get really angry. And then now in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, God's plan was so much better. So now I'm a little bit, like, better. <laughs> like, when it doesn't go according to Abby's plan, like, being, okay, God has a better plan. And, and that's been better for me each and every time. So what happened was, there's so much time to talk. Okay. <laughs> was that, I'm trying to think how granular I should get. I had had an internship in New York the summer before. I worked at a corporate PR firm because I needed to get paid in order to be able to live in New York. The woman I had worked for, I kept in touch with the whole time in my senior year of college, and she went to a big publicity company in New York. And I kept in touch with her, and I was going to go. And she, we'd orchestrated it, so I was going to go be her assistant when I graduated. So I would actually have a job, which was, like, crazy at that time. And she called me up in April of 2002, and she's like, oh, I have some bad news for you. She's like, the president's assistant wants to move desks, and so she's taking my assistant job. So you can go up for that job, 
And I was like, throw, totally thrown, right? I'm 21 years old. I'm like, I had a plan. How am I supposed to stick to my plan? And what happened was I ended up getting that job for the president, and it was the best job, first job that I could have ever had. And that's what I learned in those two years working for that woman informs my entire, like, how I deal with filmmakers today. So, like, again, got total God. But that job when I moved to New York was a little bit high pressure. It was very double wears Prada. <laughs> and so uh, the pressure of that job and not having any of my old broken tools, because I couldn't, like, be bulimic as much as I wanted to be. I wasn't, didn't have time to work out like I wanted to. And when I would deal with the stress, again, I had no coping mechanisms. So I would, like, get yelled at, go to the kitchen, like, house a bunch of bagels and cream cheese. It was New York. Come back to my desk and be able to deal. And so very quickly, I gained about 30 pounds um, in about three months from when I moved from Wisconsin to New York. And so I was not, I mean, I was not willing to face that. I was in my disease was, you know, doing a real good job putting me in denial using drugs and alcohol. So that was a fun combo. And, um, but I loved it. I loved what I was doing. I knew something was off <laughs> with my food, but I was like, ah, I'll deal with it later because I'm like, I have this huge big job. And then, um, again, Abby's plan didn't work out. I thought I was going to stay in New York doing what I wanted to do, which is get into production and development. And I interviewed at so many jobs. I wasn't getting a job. And people kept telling me, you have to move to L.A. to do what you want to do. And I was like, no, because I know better, right? And I, then the guy was like, yeah, you're not getting a job here. So, <laughs> so um, a friend of mine uh, put me up for a job at his company, which was New York and L.A. based. I moved out to L.A. I did get a job working as an assistant in, uh, in a production development department of one of the studios. So I moved out here for my big dream job. And I was so excited and so excited by what I was doing. And then I was completely fucking miserable because I didn't think that I had the body that I should have to show up for this life. And uh, so I felt like I was just, you know, acting as if all the time. Like, acting as if when I go out socially, acting as if, like, that's fine that, like, I have this stuff, but, like, really i got to get my shit together to get my body in, in line with, like, what this life is or else, like, what's the point? So it escalated. It totally escalated the, um, it's a progressive disease. Um, and so then the bulimia really kicked it up because now I was going to the snack room and back to my tent. There's a lot of candy in that room, not bagels and cream cheese. Um, and always tons of food, you know, late night. And I remember I had, like, really gone to town on a Sweet Lady Jane cake and was in the bathroom purging and almost got busted. And that, between that and, again, you know, that spiritual mess, between that and the commercial diet program, I was finally willing to come to this program. And that was January 2005. Oh, my God, thank God I did. I was 24 years old. How lucky am I that I have been able to live a third of my life in these rooms. And I have no idea how other people live life without a 12-step program, but I'm really glad that I do. So, because um, it teaches me how to live. I live by these principles in all my affairs. And so, yeah, I had, to, um, I had to really surrender that I didn't know. I didn't know what the solution was. And I heard in these rooms, find a sponsor who has what you want and do what they do. And I feel incredibly fortunate, too. I've been working with the same sponsor for almost 12 years. And um, she basically reparented me. We don't have a codependent relationship at all. But it was the first time I got just unconditional love and, like, gentleness and, like, okay, you're doing that, fine. You know, one day you'll have the willingness not to. Just pray for it. And that's just obviously the antithesis I grew up with. So I was willing to listen. And so I just, 
I didn't have a concept really of God. I, I've always felt very guided, but I'm Jewish. There was no. We, I was raised a conservative Jew, and the our the, you know the white God and a, the white bearded man in the stories, but there was no connection to a, a like an energy that works in my life on a day to day basis that I can trust is taking care of me. So I had to. That took a while, and I just acted as if. All right. I just acted as if that I believed in it, and then again, like I said, these these opportunities in my life that I can now look back on and see how guided I was that reinforces my faith in a higher power. And now I don't do anything without God. Like sometimes I'm, I'm like I don't even send an email without God. I don't make a phone call without God. <laughs> like I don't know what I would do without this God of my understanding today. So um, talk about powerlessness and step one because I'm back in step one right now. So I, I'm really attuned to where I've learned that I'm powerless and I don't know but that's okay because God knows um so yeah it took a couple years before I was willing to really do something different with my food and about I think it was like three or three-ish years in I was like okay I'm willing to listen to someone uh I still wasn't ready for numbers because as an anorexic bulimic you know compulsive person numbers just not good for me so I found outside help, a nutritionist, who is well-versed in the 12 steps, and she was so gentle and so loving. And here's an instance of I don't know. So she has a lot of science she uses with, like, measuring things. And she said to me, and I love sharing this story because it's so, like, powerful for me of I don't know. She said, how much do you think you should weigh? And I said the number. And she said, and it ends in a four, by the way, not a five or zero. <laughs> so strange. <laughs> disease so weird um so i said this number and she goes where did you get that number and i'm like i mean come on i've like i'm basically have a phd in nutrition i've read all the books like i've done all the research and she's like that's interesting you think that number because the lowest set point that your body will be comfortable at or else you're in starvation mode is 16 pounds more than that so every time you've been below this number that i'm telling you you're hurting your body and that's not natural for your body and you're in starvation mode and I was like, what? That's crazy. So that was like a huge light bulb of like, oh, and humility of like, I don't know. Like, and, it, and it's okay that I don't know. And, and what a gift that was to be much more gentle with myself on, on, you know, that standard of perfection. Again, like I said, my disease is perfectionism, and it sets the bar impossibly high. I was trying to reach this impossible number. It was not scientifically possible for my body unless I was starving my body. So that was a huge gift. So, yeah, so then, but my story is such that I'm a very compulsive person, so I substituted a lot of things. So once I put down the food, you know, other things came up. So um, so peeling the layer of the onion, um, I what came up next? Toxic relationship. So that was really fun. And I'm the kind of person, as type A and overachieving as I am, I won't change a compulsive behavior until it gets too painful not to change it. I'll stick to it until the very bitter end. So this is like an extremely toxic relationship. I was not getting any of my needs met. And it, it's actually important for my story because it was um, I would attract these kind of guys who had very similar history as I did. Mommy issues, trauma, complex trauma, and they were not capable of meeting my needs. And I had no ability to like ask for my needs to be met. And so God took that away, that relationship from me, ripped it out from me in a very painful way um, when I found out he was sleeping with my best friend for the last three years that we were involved. Um, so that was fun. Again, like I need God <laughs> to do things for me sometimes. So that was very painful. 
Um, but what popped up at the exact same time was this crazy, crazy, crazy job that I had. Um, so that took over, like, anything that I could have, like, I was like, okay, I don't really have, really have time to process that and why I'm, like, doing that in those kind of relationships. And now I'm going to just be a workaholic. But what happened was I – and I still – I'm using my tools. I'm going to meetings. The food's not a problem at this point. But I'm an addict who likes to take the edge off. So this job specifically was insane. This man that I worked for is an insane human. But I was learning so much, like so much. And so it was worth it to me to do this and to have this opportunity. But in order to – and I would have very little time to sleep. So, like, I'd be at the office or with him or traveling, like, till midnight. I would get, like, eight hours from when I left the office when I had to be back in the office. And so to, like, calm myself down and to process, I was drinking a lot more than was probably good for me at the time. So then the alcohol came up. Um, so then I did a little stint in AA, didn't stick that time around, um, that we're still dealing with that. That's a, a conversation between me and God and my sponsor. Um, but that, when I left that job, I really, really, I was 30, I think I was 30 when I left that job. I was like, okay, I'm ready to take care of myself. I don't need to put my needs completely aside. I don't want to feel this way physically because of work. I want balance. And so I saw outside help again. That really helped me get clear on what I need, what my self-care needs to be. And that's a huge part of my recovery, making sure I'm spending time, uh, that I'm devoting enough time for self-care. Because, by the way, it affects my weight. If I'm super stressed out, I was talking about this on Sunday, and this is where my outside help is awesome because she explains the science to me behind a lot of things. When I'm really stressed, you know, I think our brains or adrenal system releases cortisol, which then makes you retain water. So literally being stressed out makes you gain weight. So I have to make sure that I'm doing enough self-care so I'm not you know, managing my anxiety levels. So around that time is when I'm like, okay, I, I think this is what works for me in terms of day to, what my day-to-day needs to be. There's a certain amount of exercise I need to do a week for me, to make my brain quiet down. Meditation I had picked up at this crazy job because I didn't have access to, to exercise all the time. And I was finally willing to meditate, which for me is like natural Xanax. I love it so much. I cannot... I cannot, I, I was super resistant to meditation prior to, prior to this job, um, I, I just, and now I had to meditate because it's one of the only tools available to me, and it calmed me down instantaneously. I'm like, oh, there's something to this, that's why everybody says you should meditate. Um, and all these ideas would come to me when I meditate, like solutions to problems, and so, yeah, so I had picked up meditation, so that's part of my daily practice. Um, I get, I, I get, uh, one of the other things that happened was uh, another thing of, I don't know, around the same time I was willing to deal with my, um, just, uh, you know, uh, really address the weight. I kept asking, pulling people in program, like who had physical recovery, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Everybody has a different food plan, you know, and that's what can be challenging about a way. It's like, well, can't you just tell me what to do? Like, can't we just like put the plug in the jug? And that's unfortunately not what we do, but I think it's so helpful for us to be really attuned to what we need specifically throughout the day because then we're working our program all day long. So we're not picking up the food. So um, I was pulling people. And so everybody had a different food plan, and I was not really getting any answers there. But the one thing that people kept saying that they all did was get on their knees in the morning. I was like, well, that's not really going to help me with my food. Well, I didn't know, again. <laughs> and so then I'm like, well, I'll just act as if. And so I started getting on my knees in the morning, and coupled with my outside help, the weight started coming off. Crazy. So, um, so that was a really awesome thing. So my day, so my days now start with, um, 
I get down on my knees, I say the first uh, three steps, and I say the serenity prayer and the third step prayer. And sometimes I'll get specific about if there's other stuff that's really, my brain's really loud. When I wake up in the morning, I'll ask God to, like, help me deal with whatever it is that's, like, causing me massive anxiety. And then throughout the day, I'm texting, I'm calling, I have sponsees, I have a sponsor. So uh, meetings at least three times a week um, is what I try. That's what works for me. It uh, keeps my brain quiet and, and keeps the disease at bay. So, okay, so what happened in the last two years? So I was at um, another job, uh, a big job at a studio, and I had also, and this is God, I kept having this idea in my head for a TV show, and I it wouldn't get out of my brain. And I kept trying to ignore it. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that because, like, I got this big job. There's no way I can do this on the side. I don't really know how to do it. It's outside of my area of expertise. But I kind of did a little bit when I was at this other job. So I kind of know the materials I need to create this show. So, but I kept ignoring it. And God was, like, real loud. Like, no, you're going to do this. One of the people that I was going to uh, ask to be in the show moved into my building I was like, what? That's crazy. And so I look at that now, those God shots of, like, that's God. Like, okay, I need to go into that direction. And I was really struggling with the fear of failing. And what happened was the, the final straw that kicked me into actually trying to pursue doing this opportunity was that a book was delivered onto my doorstep that literally talks about women and fear and what stops them from being CEOs. And I didn't order it. And I was like, what the? So I'm like, okay, God, I mean, that's pretty clear that she, that this person moved into my building and he just sent me this book about, like, conquering fear in order to, um, you know, do, do business opportunities. I, okay. So I pursued it, and lo and behold, I got it on air. So that was January 2015. We were prepping the show. I also have had this job at the studio. So I was working like 24-7. And my parents were coming into town the long weekend in January, and I kept telling them. I try and see them like two or three times a year for like less than three days. That's like what works for me. <laughs> and my mom kept insisting for years to come this long weekend when for me, that long weekend in January is not a free weekend. I'm prepping for a festival, and I work all weekend. And she's like, it's okay, you'll make it work. We're going to Palm Springs. You'll just make it work. And I'm like, okay. And because still, dutiful daughter, I'm the perfectionist. I'm going to make it work. And I go down, and my sister and I go down to Palm Springs, and we're there for, um, we're going down for the night. And um, I, ugh, ugh, it's really painful. So my parents' best friends, are, that's who they were visiting. And the mom of that family is like, stereotypical mom. So my sister's sick, so she notices my sister's sick. She's like, oh, Nina, let me get you a blanket. My mom is like, you know, three sheets to the wind, and like, couldn't care less, couldn't have noticed. And then she's, you know, just not cognizant of us. She doesn't see us. And um, thank you. Seeing that difference between my aunt, like we call her my aunt, and my mom was, something about it like really got me. And then um, I was talking about how stressed out I was, and my mom's like, why? And I'm like, well, I have two full-time jobs right now. She's like, eh. And then, um, <laughs> she doesn't really care. And then that night, I wanted to show them, you know, uh, some of the, the pilot of the show, and I turned it on, and it was about two or three minutes in, and my mom's like, I'm bored. Let's turn this off. So, oh, and meanwhile, the whole weekend criticizing me why don't, I'm not married and don't, I haven't provided grandkids and don't have a boyfriend. So the combination of all of that was my <laughs> part of my perfect storm. 
And I took the laptop and I took my sister and we went into the car and I had a breakdown. And I'm like, something's not right. I, like, this is, I can't, like, I, these barbs, this criticism would shake me. And I would think, maybe there isn't something right with my life. Maybe there is something still wrong with me. And so those criticisms, which were constant, anytime I saw her, I'd have to, like, gild myself for, like, whatever criticism about my life was going to happen. I'm like, I, I, something's not right. And at the same time, I found myself involved with another dude with money issues and trauma. And I'm like, ah, no, this was my perfect storm. I'm like, I got to go back into therapy. And God places people in our lives, I think, at the right time. And I found a, a therapist who's, again, like Dr. Bennett Leventhal. I won't say her name because I don't think she would like it. But um, she was amazing. And in the last two years, I've had to revisit my childhood and put a name to what it was. And it was child abuse. And that's really hard to say out loud. Um because I was always told, you know, you know, we're we're just pushy, you know, she's just a pushy Jewish mother. And um, the other thing that happened is I started taking care of my, my my one of my best friends is a single mother, so I've been really involved in her baby's life. And the way that I my instinct is to parent a child is so radically different than what how I was treated. And just to think that how I was treated is just like how do you treat a child that way? How do you say things like that to a kid? And so that was just all of this stuff together. I'm just like, oh my god. So it's been a lot of it's been a lot of work the last two years to really, you know, start dealing with this stuff. And it's been a huge gift. And the other gift that happened. So here's this is crazy. So I was at this at the studio and things were sorted. And January this year, I'm like, okay, like I've got a handle on this. I'm not also producing a television show. I'm gonna focus on my personal life this year. God had other plans. And there was a regime change at my studio, and the top five of us all got fired. So <laughs> that put a red monkey wrench in my plans of what was happening. But this is a gift from God, and I feel so grateful. I was fired with two years on my contract. So basically, I get two years to, like, figure out what I want to do or do other stuff and other opportunities. And the first time in 15 years that I've actually had time to, like, dictate my own schedule and work on whatever I want to work on and time to actually process this grief. And I don't think that's an accident. So now I find myself, I, it's, I think I'm getting towards the tail end of it, but like crying all the time, which was not something that was familiar for me, having panic attacks, but like experiencing feelings in real time. So I feel like I've like completely unwrapped all the bubble wrap around me that I've had since childhood. And I've like, God's helped me remove all of it. And so I'm like really raw, but it's amazing. And like me showing my vulnerabilities has made my relationships so much more amazing because like who wants to be friends with a perfect person nobody that's not fun like you know I love it when my friends show me all their warts it makes me love them even more and so I've been willing to do that and I've seen my relationships just totally flourish and you know I've had to go to God a lot with all for all with all of this stuff because it can get too overwhelming and because I'm going to God so much like I'm just seeing so many God shots which has totally catapulted me in this new uh, phase of my career which is going incredibly well better than I could have ever imagined um and I'm so glad that I got fired earlier this year <laughs> because again it's one of the things I have no idea I don't know what the plan is right now I've transitioned into this new phase and I'm so excited and I'm so scared but like I know I've got a program I've got fellows I don't go to the food if, if the food is up that is a red flag I gotta get back to basics so for today, I'm just grateful. I'm powerless. I don't know, and God's got a plan. So thanks for letting me share.
question. My higher power is a force in my life that if I tune into, shows me the way. That's how I do it. And so for me, meditation is a huge way for me to get connected to that power. Um, so I meditate for 15 minutes a day. And it's so weird. This sounds so cheesy and weird, but, like, I hear messages of, like, do this. I remember when I was having a really hard time in my show, one of the cast members had pulled out, like, right before we were about to shoot something. And I was like, what is going on? Like, we need him for this thing. And I got quiet, and I meditated, and I heard what his issues were. And I was able to then solve the problem and get him back on board from a message I heard in meditation. And that does not come from me. Like, that is how God shows up in my life for me, if I get quiet and I trust. Where that comes from, I don't know. If it's my intuition and whatever, if it's your gut, you know, that's from, that's a version of it. But I believe that I, you know, have a power in my life that wants the best for me if I tune into that power. What kind of meditation do you practice? There's a, oh, sorry. Um, what kind of med- meditation do I practice? I just set a timer for 15 minutes. It's a great app. I can tell you about it afterwards. Um, I've tried guided meditations. I just like it to be quiet. I just like to be quiet and let my brain just do its thing. And I have no judgment about what goes on in my brain when I meditate. Like, I just, it, it's, and I had to build. I think it was first I did, like, a couple minutes just to start. Because my friends were like, can you do, like, two minutes, three minutes? So I did that. Then went it up to five, then to ten, and now it's 15. And oftentimes it, like, goes by in a second. I want to do is just let, let the chatter happen, and the chatter just burns off, and then, like, it can be quiet. Um, I, I practice a lot of yoga, too. It's something that found me at age 15. I, I can, like, program. I feel very grateful, and that's something I do a lot of, and that's my moving meditation. And, like, I work out a lot of stuff um, on the mat, so that's another kind of meditation I do. Can you talk about um, making healthy choices in dating and relationships a little bit? Boy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, can I talk about making healthy choices in relationships and dating? God and I are still working on that. Um, what I do know now is I don't put myself in situations when I see red flags. So, for example, um, yeah, if, if someone's telling me their story and I can pick up that, like, a guy doesn't have any other intimate relationships in their life, that's a red flag for me. Like, if you can't have intimacy, if you don't have friends, if you don't have, like, like long-term friends, that's, for me, that says something that I don't necessarily know that it's a healthy thing. Um, so, yeah, I'm still working on that, but I really try and bring God into it and listen to my gut. I don't find dating to be an enjoyable experience. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> Um, you know, I actually usually meet people in activities that I like doing and, like, not apps or anything like that because I find that to be torture and I don't believe that dating should be torture. Can you talk about how your relationship with your mom has changed? Can I talk about how my relationship with my mom has changed? Well, one thing, trial and error, was a lot of um, how I've learned to deal with my mother today, which is prior to this new phase, um, I would try and talk to her about when, like, things, she would say things that really hurt me. Um, I remember she said, (laughs) I was home, and she had just gotten um, plastic surgery. And my mom, by the way, doesn't look like 
She doesn't take care of herself, nothing. So the fact that she even got plastic surgery, you would think that my mother is like the standard of perfection. She's asking me to be. Not at all. She doesn't exercise, nothing. She's, you know, whatever. I'm not going to take her inventory. So we're sitting there at lunch, and she's like getting on my case about not having a boyfriend. And she's like, you know, she just had this plastic surgery. And she's like, you know, I really worry because, like, when you need to have plastic surgery, who's going to take care of you? I'm like, that's like two insults in one. That's amazing. Like, she's really talented that way. Um, So I would talk to, like, after those things happened, and I would, like, I wouldn't even know even in the moment how painful it was. And afterwards, I'd process it, and I'd try and talk to her, like, you know, when you say things like that, it's very hurtful to me. And she would immediately go into, well, you know that I had a shitty mother, and she criticized me all the time, and blah, blah, blah. So there's no conversation. My mother, you know, according to my therapist, is a, is a clinically diagnosed narcissist. So there's no challenging. There's no trying to have her see things from my point of view. So I've learned just, you know, just to keep my side of the street clean and to protect myself. And, and that means not seeing her as much, or barely, at all. So thank you.